give him a round of applause. Hi, everybody. How are you? Uh, Michelle, thank you for the invitation to be part of the Kingstown Communion this morning. Um, in 2007, when you were the dream that was in my head, it came from reading an article in the Washington Post about the population explosion around Belvoir. So it seemed right when I couldn't find a strong, great church in the area that that would be our calling. I had started a church about 20 years earlier in the, the Richmond, Virginia area. So I knew the difference a church can make in the lives of families and individuals and thought that there might be a chance for us to do that in the lives of others. Um, in 2008, the dream went away because of the recession, and the money that had been available for the project uh, disappeared. So the project went on hold for a while until finally um, resources gathered and people gathered in the Aldersgate, which is the church that um, helped launch this church, said, yes, let's go. Um, so. Uh, one of the things we couldn't have imagined is that you would have the incredibly competent leadership of Michelle Matthews to guide you. Um, you are unusually blessed to have a person of her passion, her intelligence, and her deep devotion. So, Michelle, it is an honor to work beside you. And uh, would you join me in thanking Michelle for all she does? Um, so, Michelle, don't, don't end up like me. Um, <laughs> Sometimes my life feels as if it is my cell phone and that I skim across a dozen different things and never land on one thing where I can linger. Um, it's as if my life is passing beside me without any consideration of whom I'm becoming or where I want to end. The demands of life over the summer seem to exceed my capacity to respond. Have you ever known what it feels like to say... Um, obsessed and overwhelmed are no longer a mental illness, but are the description of my life. Uh, so in search of some peace and some respite or recentering, um, my wife put me on a vamoose bus in Roslyn, Virginia, and I headed to New York to be by myself for five days. I was going to take a class with Joseph Reggio, a man who uh, lives in New Jersey that I met in uh, Italy to take a two-week class with him. Uh, in that class, he taught me what it is to find God's grace in the middle of my body and my heart and my mind uh, and the whole, what it is to be lost in God's grace. He was offering this class in New York, so I looked forward to reestablishing a connection to Joseph, who drives me more crazy than any human being on the planet. Uh, I wish he was better at teaching what he's good at doing. Um, but he does it so exceptionally well. Uh, so I was dropped off in Grand Central Station, uh, wheeled my suitcase to a hotel where I was staying, and then on uh, Friday morning made my way to an Airbnb condo where the class was going to be taught by Joseph. He had rented it out for the weekend. He had a video set up so that he could videotape the session that was five of us who were in the room who I didn't know would be there is a man named Jim. Uh, Jim had studied with John Perkins something called guided chaos. Guided chaos is a, a martial art made for street fighting. Not what I had thought I was signing up for when I thought I would work with Joseph. Um, I got through the door, and when I got inside, 
Jim was waiting to greet us along with Joseph. Jim, uh, who had just finished a 20-year career as a Marine. Jim, African-American, six foot three, 215 pounds of solid muscle. So I reached out my hand to say hi to Jim. I'm inside of the room. I'm not at the door. He's at the back of the room. And I reach out my hand to say hi. And he takes his hand, both feet firmly planted, and puts his hand on my chest. And it is as if dynamite is in his hand, and he knocks me across the room on my butt. And I want to say, that's not how we pass the peace in the Methodist <laughs> church. Right. Um, so shocked, disoriented, not knowing where I am. My ego is shattered. I'm not the man I thought I was. He reaches over to help. I think, I don't know what he's reaching over to do. But he reaches out his hand and takes it. And as he pulls me up, he says, in three days, you will do that to me. I, Dennis Perry, a United Methodist minister of 42 years, a graduate of Eastern Mennonite conscientious objector, I have one mission for the next three days, and it is to knock the African-American, six-foot-three, 215-pound Marine out of the window. In that moment, I saw this kind of integrity that I wanted, this kind of shattering of the self and reorienting of the self where your own experience becomes more important than all the thoughts that are in your head. Uh, What I had feared had happened to me over the summer last year was this um, growing hypocrisy where I could pretend to be one person on the outside for everybody to see but be a different person on the inside. I was thinking all week how I would make that known to you. And then God gave me Roy Moore. Supreme Court Justice, State Supreme Court Justice in Alabama, who was removed from the bench twice because he refused to follow the laws of the land. Roy Moore, who one of the laws of the land he refused to obey was when the Supreme Court said he had to take the Ten Commandments out of a federal building the man who stands for Christianity, the man who stands for the Ten Commandments, is running for state senate in Alabama and has been accused of having an unwanted relationship with a 14-year-old girl. It's like the best sermon illustration of all time. Jesus talked about something called hypocrisy where there were people who sat in the seat of Moses telling everybody what they should do. And though their words were right, their behaviors were wrong. Like my friend Joseph, he can't get the words right, but he gets the actions perfect. Um, Jesus called those people hypocrites. It's a Greek word from Hippocritus, which means a stage actor. I didn't want to be that. I also sometimes suffer from something called imposter syndrome. Do you know what that is? where you're um, just working really, really hard and doing everything right. You're playing a role. You don't know if you're quite the right person to play. And you're afraid everybody's going to see that you're just not who you claim to be. Um, so I want to I read you, in honor of my own imposter syndrome, the story of Ishii Yoshiki. He has an eight-year-old company in Japan. Uh, and in its eight years, it now has 800, 800 employees 
The company is called Family Romance. His 800 employees are all actors, ranging from infants to the elderly. And their plan, their business plan, is to provide a surrogate for any conceivable situation. That is, if you have some circumstance come up in your life, they can find an actor who will play the role you need played. Well, to make it plain, I thought I would just read the interview. Just to be perfectly clear, you're coming today as yourself, aren't you? He said, yes, at this moment I am only myself. What was your first role? I had a single mother friend who had a son. He was trying to enter a private school, but they denied him solely because he had no father. I wanted to challenge the unfairness of Japanese society, so I posed as his father. Were you successful? No, but it inspired the idea for this business. When was your first success? I played a father for a 12-year-old with a single mother. The girl was bullied because she didn't have a dad, so the mother rented me. I acted as the girl's father ever since. I am the only real father that she knows. Is this ongoing? Yes. I've been her father for eight years. She just graduated from high school. Does she understand that you're not her real father? No. Her mother never told her. The real father disappeared, and then I came on the scene. How do you think she would feel if she discovered the truth? I think she would be shocked. If the client never reveals the truth, I must continue the role indefinitely. If the daughter gets married, I have to act as a father in the wedding, and then I have to be the grandfather. So I always ask every client, are you prepared to sustain this lie? It's the most significant problem our company has. So would you be involved with her for the rest of her life? It's risky that she might discover the truth someday. In this company, one person can only have five families at a time. That's the rule. It's not only about secrecy. The client always asks for the ideal husband, the ideal father. That's a very difficult role to maintain. How do you determine what the ideal father is? There's an order form. (laughs) There's an order form where every possible preference is listed. Hairstyle, glasses, beard, fashion sense. Do you like classy? Do you like casual? Is he affectionate or stern? When he arrives, should he be talkative or tired from a long day at work? What did the mother that you helped mention on her form? She wanted the father to be kind, very kind. He would never yell. yell. She wanted the kind of father who would be able to deliver wise advice. How did you create that persona? I'm not even married. I have no kids. At first, I couldn't really find in myself the kind of father she wanted me to be, so I watched a lot of movies about fathers, and I cultivated my persona through the movies. When you're working as her father, is it purely acting, or do you feel something? It's a business. I'm not going to be her father for 24 hours. It's a set time. When I'm acting with her, I really don't feel love for her. But when the session's over, I do feel a little sad. I understand you work as a boyfriend, too. Can you describe that experience? This doesn't come with pictures. (laughs) Um, Those clients are usually older ladies. It used to be primarily women in their 50s, but now there are even more women in their 30s. Is it physical? It's a dating situation, but it's never physical. 
generally the women just want to have fun with a younger man. They want to feel young again. Why do you think these women hire you? The women typically say that in a real relationship, you're slowly building trust. It takes years to create a strong connection. For them, it's a lot of hassle and disappointment. Imagine investing five years with someone and then breaking up. It's much easier to schedule two hours per week to interact with an ideal boyfriend. There's no conflict, no jealousy, no bad habits. Everything is perfect. That's how we should get pastors, isn't it? We fill out a preference form, and you just get exactly what you want. What's it, do the women ever want to marry you? He says, yes. I want to marry you is what they say. And what I tell them is, you're in love with an order form. It's not me. It's the acting that you love. If I married her, I'd have to keep acting. And there are certain women who are wonderful, but the soul I have with them is not my real soul. So I could not and I would not. What's your favorite role? It doesn't happen often, but there are cases when I have to be a groom. There are situations where parents pressure a daughter to marry. So they have an entire wedding, and it's a fake wedding, except for the members of the daughter's family. The friends, everyone else are fake. My side is fake. The bride is faking it. Fifty fake people all pretending for $100,000 that this is a real wedding. How many times have you been married? Three times. And the brides, do they ever see you again? We never meet again. Imposter's syndrome. It's, um, there's a passage you just heard from the Apostle Paul who talked about people showing up at church because it had become the place to be. And they were content simply to be in the race, like it's the New York Marathon, the Boston Marathon, but they have no desire to finish or to win. They just want a participation trophy when it's over. Um, what I didn't want when I was feeling the sense of hypocrisy and being an imposter is just to have shown up and put in the time and never have a transformation myself. That grace no longer was at the center of my life, but I wanted it at the center of yours. It's just not enough, is it? It's not satisfying. It's not what we need. There are occasions when you see it when it all comes together. There was a bond trading company called Cantor Fitzgerald that lost two-thirds of its employees on September the 11th, 2001. Their company owned the top four floors of the World Trade Center. They lost two-thirds of their 1,000 employees. They lost their computer systems, their massive database. The company was destroyed. Three days after the crisis on September the 11th, Howard Lutnick, Cantor's chairman, announced that 25% of all the profits of the company would go over the next five years to the families of those who had died. Now, it may not make any sense, but it changed the people who remained. They called themselves a band of brothers and sisters drawn together by a shared tragedy and a shared mission. They began working 10 and 12 and 16 hour days. They discovered an unusual sense of patience and empathy and endurance and commitment. People that had left the company and gone to work other places came back to be part of this mission. The idea of resurrecting a company and saving families' lives that had been tragically destroyed by the attack. 
So I think that's what I dreamed when I dreamed of you. This sense of shared tragedy and shared mission. I dreamed of a community like you who would understand the New Testament was written in the light of the falling tower of the life of Jesus Christ, in the shadow of the cross where its splinters had entered their souls, where they had lost like a temple falling to the ground what they considered most precious. And then from there, from that shared tragedy, they found a mission to share the grace of Jesus Christ with the world. There's a certain integrity there in which you're not faking it, you're not hoping it, you're not getting a participation trophy, but you are playing to win all in everything that you have, that this grace is not simply something you do along with the rest of your life. It is the thing that is at the core, the center of your life. It is the mission that organizes your calendar. It organizes your energy. It organizes your relationships. It sets your priorities. It is the thing that is God talking to you. It isn't just an option of self-care. It is the command of God to who you are going to become. So that was my dream for you. And it is an amazing thing to sit and to stand and to watch a baby be baptized, a community of people whose names I don't know, um, gathered here to be part of what is God's mission to the world, whose lives have been forged to become a, a community, the Kingstown community. So I, um, I want to applaud you being all in. as someone who stood on the outside of what it is to be on the inside, and now one who is glad to be in again. I want to applaud you for being in. There is nothing like it in the world. I offer it to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, do you stand for the benediction? You can. You can? Okay. Thanks. Um, after the third day in a B&B in Manhattan, having listened to Joseph and been trained by Jim, half an hour before the retreat ended, Jim stood directly in front of me and without a word did this. <laughs> so what I had dreamed of three days doing I went to him and put my hands as he had taught me and put it on his chest. And like dynamite, I knocked him back three feet. He didn't land on his butt. He didn't go out of the window. <laughs> but I knocked him back three feet. It is a powerful thing when your desires and your actions become one. So I offer you this benediction. Now may the grace and the peace that comes from knowing and serving our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ be with you now and forevermore. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen.